0: Welcome back to IGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shia, a sophomore at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, and one of the co-hosts of this podcast.
1: And I'm Jill Weinbanks, an MSNBC legal analyst and the author of The Watergate Girl. Uh, I'm also the one who wears Jill's pins, and today's pin is very special for today's guest. It is a series of Russian dolls, uh, which you can all see if you're watching us on YouTube. If not, you'll have to check out my Twitter account.
0: Recently, President Biden met with Russia's President Vladimir Putin in Geneva following the G7 meeting. After four years of a rather odd relationship between President Putin and former President Trump, the face-to-face summit was highly anticipated and debated. Some people thought the summit was a good idea that might ease tensions and improve relations between Russia and the U.S., while others thought that even extending the invitation to Putin for an in-person meeting only served his interests. It would not result in anything substantive or beneficial to the U.S. U.S.
1: Now that the summit is over, we have with us a friend and former guest of iGen Politics, Fiona Hill, to discuss her role in preparing President Biden and his team for the summit, what happened at the summit, what we should expect going forward in terms of our relationship with Russia, and to fill us in on her new book, which is coming out in October. Putin gained power in 1998. And his appetite uh, for even greater power intensified after his re-election in 2012. Do you think that President Obama responded to him uh, during his presidency in a strong enough manner?
2: Well, I think that part of the problem that we have in any uh, case for any president in responding to Russia is always the nature of their assessment of what they're dealing with. And it's not just the nature of Putin himself. But it's also this kind of idea that Russia is somehow in decline. And during the Obama administration, there was a kind of a sense that Russia is a country in decline because you look at all of the indices of power. You know you don't just look at Putin the person, but you look at all of you know the ways in which the size of the military, the size of the economy, the size of the population, not so just the size of the territory. There's all these indices of you know uh, of power that we kind of take for granted. And by those kinds of conventional measures, Russia seems to be a country that's, again, as I said, in decline. So there was a kind of sense, sorry, my dog's barking, I don't know whether that was Russia, a country in decline, that set her off. But it was a whole um, idea. She obviously doesn't agree with it either. But there's somehow this idea that you could wait Russia out. And that was really, you know, quite problematic. And I think that that uh, kind of, sorry, very loud now, that this um, frames the thinking of President Obama and others, that, you know, maybe, you know, Russia wasn't that much of an issue to be uh, really worried about. And also, President Obama's uh, term largely coincided with uh, Dmitry Medvedev stepping in as president in the kind of period where Putin had to step aside briefly, as it turned out, you know, four years, I suppose, is a reasonable amount of time, but before he could become president again, because at that time, the Russian constitution precluded. Uh, two consecutive, uh, more than two consecutive terms, so he couldn't do a third. Mm-hmm. And so President Obama was also dealing with not just sort of perception of the, you know, Russia wasn't the force it used to be to be reckoned with, that, you know, perhaps you know, could kind of wait Russia out. And here we had Dmitry Medvedev rather than Vladimir Putin to contend with. And so, as you know, we recall that they attempted then a kind of a reset and kind of a way of rebalancing the relationship to see how we could then proceed. And of course, you know, by the end of uh, the period, President Putin came right back again. And, you know, that we also saw that uh, Putin and Russia could really deploy force in different ways, not in the ways that we were thinking about, but they were able to really focus a uh, lot of uh, military power, Um, And also a lot of subversive power, which I think was something that we talk about, that they could deploy to effect. So the really indices of power should really look at how can countries and, you know, their leaders actually deploy power to get influence. And I think, you know, that we we were just starting looking at this from the wrong vantage point.
1: So talk a little bit more about that. And and particularly as Obama's time as president uh, ended, how the two countries were Viewing each other. What was our position? What was their position?
2: Well, of course the end of uh, the Obama presidency We saw how Russia could use this subversive coercive and covert action and um, You know the -the behind-the-scenes deployment of force to really make its presence felt There was the annexation of Crimea the sparking of a war in the the Donbass region um, of uh, Eastern Ukraine There was the intervention in Syria uh, which, again, wasn't with a massive force, but was with a very effective deployment of military force to back up uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria at a point where he looked like he was going to be toppled as a consequence of the civil war there. And that then immediately gave Russia a bigger foothold than it had had before, not just in Syria, but in the whole of the eastern Mediterranean and a position for which to um, project more power in, in the, the, the broader European region. And once they'd annexed Crimea as well, they were able to assert uh, their influence even more broadly across the Black Sea. And then we also saw uh, the interference in our election in 2016. And of course, that's the kind of whole wrap-up of the uh, Obama presidency. But the Obama administration went out on a you know, very low note uh, with Russia. There was not much to show for the attempt for a, a reset. Uh, and there was Russia basically proving to the United States that they could not be counted out because we'd been counting on the wrong kinds of power mm-hmm. It didn't matter that their economy you know, wasn't as robust as uh, the US economy, or you know, that they were more in comparison with a smaller country like in Italy or Canada economically. But what mattered was how they could use the power that they had to exert their authority. Mm-hmm. Even if it was done in a ruthless, rather aggressive manner, and often with the aim of subversion, or of getting kind of footholds in places where we hadn't really kind of thought that they could, but they could do with, it with a limited deployment of resources.
1: And if we have time, I definitely want to come back to the troops massed on the border of Ukraine, and I want to come back to the takeover of Crimea and what's happening there. But um, let's stay on what you just said and have Victor ask you a little bit more about the change of presidency uh, in 2017.
0: Definitely. So okay, So, when Trump became president in 2017, um, can you explain how our relationship with Russia changed? Um, and I guess, did Putin feel like Trump was a legitimate partner to work with?
2: Well, Putin certainly hoped that Trump would be a legitimate partner to work with. And Putin being, you know, somebody who was trained in the KGB and the Russian security services, and also somebody who was trained to sort of target people and potentially, you know, turn them into assets, and that doesn't mean that they're actual real official assets, but just that someone who they can, you know, push or persuade or manipulate or blackmail or whatever, you know, kind of means necessary to do things that would favor their interests. You know, Putin certainly saw there was potential there. And also, Putin has a very hierarchical view of the world. Uh, He uh, wants to deal directly with leaders at the top. He doesn't want to, uh, you know, deal with people or larger institutions. He wants to make the relationship with a particular country as narrow and as easy to manage as possible. He wants to, of course, be able to manipulate and make use of societal factors, but he doesn't want to be kind of involved in it in you know, kind of a way of thinking of people to people. The only um, people to people, he's interested in his people to <laughs> another particular person. It's not you know kind of a Russian and American society. And the way that the relationship changed, therefore, is because that was the way that President Trump thought about things too. He was somebody who ran his own personal business, his own private family business, everything was an extension of himself, and he thought about the country in the same way. So what President Trump wanted to do was the same as President Putin, which is just two, the two of them sit down and thrash out some kind of deal on uh, whatever issue it was that they were you know, particularly emphasizing at that point. From Trump's point of view, he actually wanted to have a nuclear deal with, the, uh, with Russia. It was a kind of a throwback to the 1980s and, you know, the earlier time of the Cold War. That was something he'd thought about a lot. Putin was also interested in having new nuclear deals with the United States and arms control deals, mostly so that would tie the hands of the United States and try to give Russia a free reign so they were kind of coming at this from somewhat different angles. But Putin was delighted with all the mess in the U.S. domestic politics as a result of the intervention in 2016, but also delighted that Trump, was the kind of person who just wanted to have this one-on-one relationship. So the relationship went from being more institutionalized, more of a Russia to the US relationship, and just something that was all about Putin and Trump. And of course, that also backfired for Putin because of the nature of the 2016 election, all the suspicions about Trump. It actually made Putin's job harder than easier than he might have anticipated
0: you know that's interesting that you mentioned the business side of things because that that he ran on multiple times on the trail and as president of normalizing russian relations and i'm wondering if if you think there's a right way to approach russia and whether he approached it in the right way of just one on one as opposed to kind of you were saying just like country to country instead
2: well you have to do that but you have to be you know very clear about what you're dealing with um and Putin also wants to do business, but it's a, you know, his business is very much a kleptocratic clique of people around him and business people are very close uh, to the government. Unfortunately, I would say that that's kind of how Trump saw things, too, because, you know, he's very much uh, a part as again, of a family business. And, you know, Trump also wanted to have personalized relationships with American business people. I mean, think about the way that he created the Business Council, a lot of personal interactions, inviting business people in um, uh, to the White House all the time. I mean. You know, we got into that in a kind of scandalous nature with some of the business people in the latter part of um, the Trump presidency. But um, Trump also saw the United States as an extension of his business, and uh, you know saw himself not just as the you know commander in chief or the head of state, but also the CEO in chief. And Putin, you know, also tends to run Russia like a business, but it's a business that's run from the vantage point of the security services. And I think that, honestly, that was a mistake for the, thinking about the overall handling of um, uh, Russia because Russia still is a major player. Putin also doesn't just think like a business person, even though he was you know, deputy mayor of St. Petersburg in charge of business. He thinks like an operative, a black ops guy. Uh, he's, a, he's a planner. But he also does have a kind of a statesman like uh, idea about it. He's channeling Russian history, Russian interests. Russian particular positions. He does represent a larger set of views. There are others, you know, in Russia who don't come from his background, but would share the foreign policy stances that he takes. And, um, and, you know, Trump was much more singular in his positions, you know, with, I would say, the exception, perhaps, of China and some other issues that we could, you know, also um, all name. But, you know, Trump really had his own personal perspective. He wasn't always representing the United States, unfortunately, when he was meeting with Putin. He was just more channeling his own views on things. And that's not what Putin does on a regular basis.
1: So that brings us to follow up on that with the 2018 summit when uh, Putin and Trump met in Helsinki. And the big issue then was whether Russia had interfered in the elections. And Trump basically took the position of, well... Putin says he didn't, so he didn't, and he did not represent American interests in the view of very many people. You were actually in the room with him um, when all this was going on, as I understand it. So I'd like to get your viewpoint of what was going on at that time at that summit.
2: Well, Trump, uh, President Trump thought he was being humiliated in front of Putin. Um, He thought he was being undercut and that this was questions about his legitimacy. And look, that makes sense if you think about what happened in the 2016 election because many people said that Trump wasn't elected by the American people. He was elected by Vladimir Putin. Um, there were all the questions about his legitimacy because of the narrow margins in the Electoral College. I mean, I think we all know, you know, very clearly now from the 2020 election that that obviously was not the case because the same patterns came out even though the um, electoral results were flipped. And mm-hmm. President Trump, in fact, got 11 million more votes than he did back in 2016. And that was not thanks to Vladimir Putin. So, I mean, there were really actually issues that were homegrown in the United States. There were people who were genuinely supporting uh, President Trump, obviously in the millions. They weren't necessarily swayed by, you know, Russian um, intervention. Although I think there's also a very uh, strong case to make that Russia did sway some opinion. It's just that, you know, how do you pass that out in, you know, that uh, in that particular context? But that notwithstanding, the fact of the Russian intervention. The fact of course that you know Russia liked to sort of take credit for this, the fact that they were clearly messing about to discredit the elections, delegitimize whoever uh, was the eventual uh, president uh, as the end of the election really cast a dark shadow on Trump as it would have done on hit Clinton as well because it would have been questions also if she had been elected as president as whether she was legitimate, you know what, what about you know all of this interference and what had really happened here by if it was also by a narrow margin. So when President Trump was asked all of these questions and basically asked to say at Helsinki that yes, Vladimir Putin here had um, interfered, it was tantamount to, um, in his mind, admitting that somehow he wasn't the president legitimately. And he kept mentioning, if people actually look through the transcript of, I mean, I was listening to it obviously in real time, listening to it very carefully, he kept mentioning his campaign and the success of his campaign and he was in helsinki to do an arms control uh, discussion and begin talks with putin and he did not want to answer any of these questions he was trying to deflect he was over trying mm-hmm. not to answer the question he was trying to turn it around to you know his pet conspiracy theories but also to stress that no he had won and he did not want to be humiliated in front of putin and that was kind of what was clearly and obviously going on for those of us who were you know in these circles all the time. It was obvious what was going on through his mind. And of course, you know, he he could not separate out this personal feelings from, you know, the U.S. interest. If he'd been less sensitive, you know, less defensive, you know, he would have found a way to turn this around, but he didn't.
1: And so from your perspective as a professional in the field, that seems like it must have been pretty significant in U.S.-Soviet relationships and uh, that how exactly did you feel when you were listening to this denial of what seemed evident to everyone that was in the room that Russia had done something, whether it swayed any votes or not is irrelevant, they did take action. So how did you feel?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, absolutely right. As I said, whether it did or it didn't, they took action. They messed around in our elections. They wanted to delegitimize them. Uh, They wanted to discredit the United States. And there they had, they'd succeeded. But, you know, whatever Putin, else Putin wanted out of the Helsinki summit went out the window as a result of that disastrous press conference. Because the meeting itself had actually been fairly straightforward. It wasn't all that different behind the scenes to what happened um, in the um, most recent meeting between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin in Geneva. But the press conference was just an absolute disaster. Because President Trump couldn't behave like the President of the United States. He behaved more like a very vulnerable and it's exactly what Putin was trying to do. You know, can't actually have the President of the United States feel vulnerable, feel like they're on their back foot, and feel defensive, feel illegitimate. And and he relished that in that moment. So unfortunately, Putin got exactly what he wanted. Everything played directly into his hands in that regard. It was the ultimate humiliation internationally. But at the same time, it actually prevented Putin from pushing forward some Russian interests. And in the aftermath, of course, were even more sanctions applied against Russia. And it threw off all of the, you know, the very small foreign policy gains, which actually have been picked up again in uh, Geneva be, uh, in the meeting between Biden and Putin. Uh, talks about strategic stability and nuclear weapons, you know, uh, meetings between different levels of the U.S. and the Russian government, you know, talking about cyber Uh, intrusions on you know maybe potentially cyber rules of the world although that wasn't emphasized quite so much in Helsinki for all the obvious reasons of you know knowing that the Russians were just in the business of hacking you know rather than at that point wanting to talk about things in a more serious fashion but you know there had been just some you know small movement forward and that just went you know not two steps back but maybe 30 steps back at that point
0: you know, that's the perfect segue to go into what happened just a few weeks ago in Geneva. And um, I understand that you helped prepare President Biden for the summit, and, and I'm wondering, because before the summit, there was a lot of criticism or I guess um, uh, I guess skepticism for, for what might happen, and people told Biden not to meet with Putin. I'm wondering, when you first heard that Biden would be meeting with Putin, did you think that was the right decision? And kind of talk about your role in helping prepare um, President Biden for, for that moment.
2: Well, look, I, I, I would just say, you know, up front that, um, you know, I wasn't very uh, clear on the timing of the announcement because this was at that period um, when, indeed, you know, as you flagged at the very beginning there, Jill, the, um, there was the amassing of troops uh, on the borders um, uh, with Ukraine and from occupied Crimea to the border with um you know, Ukraine um, that hasn't been occupied by Russia. You also have to be very careful about how you term that. And then over uh, in the Donbass region of the East. And the timing, you know, maybe the timing might have been, um, you know, significant for making the Russians calculate about pulling back. Maybe not at all because they've made their point. But the timing of course raised, I think a lot of questions for people. But Biden, as Vice President Biden, has met with Putin before. So this is not his first time meeting with Putin. And in fact, you know, he met with him 10 years previously in 2011, where he had groups of people, you know, come and talk to him about that. I just want to be very clear that President Biden, you know, like many of uh, U.S. presidents, I mean, this is where um, President Trump was an absolute um, exception, is no near fight in foreign policy. I mean, he's been, you know, 50 odd years um, at the, in, in government. And, you know, previous, um, you know, U.S. presidents were pretty steeped in foreign policy as well. And, um, you know, he does everything that he needs to do to prepare. I mean, it was President Trump who, unfortunately, didn't really want to talk to anyone at all, even in his team or outside his team, you know, apart from just sort of picking up, you know, random pieces of information in preparation for meeting uh, with Vladimir Putin. So, you know, President Biden as vice president, as senator, you know, as um, in a previous uh, positions that he's had, you know, he was always somebody who went out to the Munich Security Conference in Germany, for example, on a regular basis. This is someone who knows foreign policy, knows Europe and knows Russia, and knew the Soviet Union previously. So in terms of his preparation, um, you know, he talked to lots of people, as he you would expect he would, just mostly to bounce ideas off. So I think this is, you know, someone who themselves has um, a pretty good grasp of, you know, what he was dealing with.
0: Um, so now that the meeting is over, how well do you think President Biden's performance lived up to your expectations, at least? Um, and, and I guess, do you think more good came out of this than, than, um, than harm?
2: Ha- well, I don't think there was particularly any harm, uh, but we'll have to see further um, what happens with additional meetings, because an episodic meeting doesn't do anything. Um, and you know, a lot of people have said this was a great gift to Vladimir Putin. Well, good luck on living off one meeting, you know, for months on end. And I think that you know what we have to see is other follow-on meetings. What happens at those meetings? Do we make any progress on strategic stability or um, on you know arms control? Maybe um, <clears throat> new treaties uh, follow on to the New START accord, which has been extended but hasn't been um, renegotiated. Do we have a follow-on to the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, INF, that the United States pulled out of, you know, basically in the summer of uh, 2019? Um, Do we have other meetings at different levels of the government? Do our defense uh, ministers meet, for example? Um, Do we have meetings, more meetings, between um, our Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, and um, Sergey Lavrov, the um, Russian foreign minister, uh, the National Security Councils have already met, Jake Sullivan met with his counterpart, Nikolai Patristev. And what comes out of those meetings? Is there something real? Because meetings are no good on their own, unless actually you have something concrete that you can actually point to. And so, you know, this was basically a kind of a a level setting, as it were, a kind of taking the measure of each other and trying to see if you could take something forward. So, in that sense, it was... um, a reasonably good meeting there wasn't any expectation of deliverable it was overblown as a summit and it got hyped up in the press precisely because it was being compared with what happened at helsinki it was more in the vein of meetings that previous presidents have had you know in a more kind of neutral level it was meant to try to take the temperature down and take the temperature at the same time of the relationship it was a good idea obviously not to have a press conference um that was joint and to have the individual press conference and you know to hear what each had to say there, but it's really about what happens next that's critical. But I do think that, you know, timing aside, it was important to have that meeting. It's been many months since uh, President uh, Biden came into office, and he did put the meeting at the very end of a very important set of meetings with European allies, and with the G7, you know, fellow democracies, which Russia is no longer part of, and uh, with NATO. So that in itself, I think, was uh, an important signaling. And he, you know, appeared there in Geneva on the same page largely as everyone else. And that is in Europe and among the Alliance. So he had a bit of a head of steam going into the Geneva meeting that was useful.
1: And and, uh, in terms of that meeting and the press conference, which I found a a really strange event uh, with both men claiming victory, um, are there some issues that you think we can reach some kind of agreement on that would be helpful to both countries?
2: Well, look, I think you can claim victory when you get through it without any untoward incident. Um, also, um, in each case, this was um, you know, uh, really a press conference, especially in President Biden's case, but it was really all the American press for domestic audiences. In the case of Russia, there was more of an international press field, but Putin loves to posture in front of the international press. And, you know, kind of it's no good to have a press conference with Russia was just the Russian press because he wants to, you know, right. to send messages and have those reverberate back home again as well. And so, you know, kind of uh, opportunity was used by President Putin to turn everything back against the United States when he was asked about human rights or any kind of problems at home. It was well, What about the United States? What about the United States? And President Biden didn't do that. I mean, he was trying to be somewhat constructive. And I do think that strategic stability, the whole discussion about arms control, where we go next with treaties, can we get any kinds of uh, reductions, uh, uh, talking about proliferation of nuclear weapons, because it's not just the United States and Russia anymore, how do you deal with a much more complex nuclear world? And then cyber. Is there any way that we can talk about this uh, cyber domain, which is also multifaceted and very complex? And is there a way also of making the point to Russia to cut it out on all the covered black operations subversion? And, you know, uh, President Biden did try to signal that, but you can only really do it in constant face-to-face interactions and having the right people sending the right signals. That also includes our intel people. Just, you know, knock it off. We have to be able to get that message across. And then we have to see if they actually do. I mean, one proof would be, you know, are they going to assassinate someone or poison someone or you know, start with a covert action that we find out. You know, and if we the judge today, you know, step back from some of this for a while. We just had an incident with the United Kingdom uh, naval um, ships after some um, uh, mm-hmm. freedom of navigation exercises in the Black Sea. That was also completely utterly predictable. I mean, the Russians are trying to exert their influence over the whole of the Black Sea. They're trying to see if they can pick the UK off from the Europeans now that the UK has left the European Union, but of course the UK remains an important NATO partner. They were just testing. We will continue to keep testing to see, you know, what our red lines are and how far we will go in pushing back. So we'll always just have to bear in mind that no matter what happens, we'll have to be dealing with this, in you know, a very difficult, hard to manage relationship. We're managing confrontation in a way.
1: Exactly. And, and in terms of confrontation, that does take us back to Ukraine and Crimea and What advice would you have for President Biden? Um, And I guess I would have to throw into that if Putin continues to lock up his opponents and poison them and uh, hurt our cyber um, capabilities, what's your advice to President Biden?
2: Well, we have to keep finding ways of pushing back and making it very clear about what our red lines are and be able to enforce them. And so that might have to be in creative ways, but we have to, obviously has to be in ways that are not public, Because, you know, if we tell them what we're going to (laughs) do, we won't be able to do it because they'll prompt us. And uh, in terms of Crimea, I mean, we can't accept, um, we we shouldn't accept that uh, Crimea has gone forever, that uh, Russia is on exit. So we can't uh, recognize that in any way. And we have to really kind of focus on helping Ukraine, along with all of um, our European allies and partners, uh, to uh, regain as much of its sovereignty uh, that it absolutely can. And to keep on um, uh, supporting Ukraine's independence and freedom of maneuver, the freedom of navigation, in the Black Sea and including around Crimea, and making it very clear that we don't accept it. We also have to acknowledge, of course, that Russia and Putin are not going to step back from that.
1: Well, I hope you continue to um, advise the president on these issues. And uh, Victor, why don't you ask one last question before we run out of time? Yeah,
0: sure. I I was just, I mean, listening to this has been so fascinating. And when I was watching that summit, one thing that I was texting with my good friend is this is, that was like the first moment that I think people my age or younger saw a president of the United States actually kind of live up to his promise of finding progress with Russia. So I guess in that respect, it was a pretty powerful moment um but one last question just uh, i know last time that we talked to you we were going to ask you about your book but we couldn't get to it so are you able to give our audience a little sneak peek about your book and and what that whole premise is about um because i know jill and i we are so excited for that
2: well thanks i mean the book comes out october 5th um i actually just finished off the index today <laughs> i got Ooh. something so we're still in the uh final production uh, phases and the book really um Takes as its starting point my experience during the um, hearings and the testimony in the first impeachment trial, and you know, kind of realizing, um, you know, the course of my time in the administration, I went in worrying about the Russia challenge because of the intervention and the interference and everything that happened in 2016, and I came out more worried about the state of the United States, our polarization, the parties are infighting. And the book is really a kind of an in-depth inquiry into, you know, what really happened there. And I'm I'm using some of my own, you know, biographical or personal experiences as the kind of the through line, you know, taking um, you know, the, the the reader, I hope, um, through um, the nineteen eighties and the deindustrialization of the UK, Russia and the United States, that kind of led to the rise of populism and much of the um, partisan polarization that we see today, actually in all three countries. I mean, I basically, um, you know, look at Putin as the first populist president of the 21st century, and you know, unfortunately, a lot of others have emulated him since. And he came out of exactly the Mm. same uh, sets of uh, socioeconomic and other um, cultural and um, social crises that um, we have experienced in the United States as well as the United Kingdom House. So, Brexit, you know, the decision to leave the EU. Uh, the European Union, the election of President Trump, all the kind of, like, divisiveness of our politics uh, have very similar roots to, surprisingly, you know, what happened in Russia in the 1990s. And I I do talk in the book about the time in the White House and how I saw this playing out. But the end of the book is an attempt to say, look, we can actually do something about this. This is not hopeless. And there's many ways in which we, all of us, uh, can tackle it. So I do hope that I'll be able to, you know, get people to read it and, uh, but it'll be able to spark off another set of conversations about what we can all do to turn things around.
1: Well, you definitely have two readers right here and we will be happy to have you back to uh, promote the book when it is published in October. And we hope that all of our listeners and viewers will also be interested in following uh, up and knowing more about your book. So thank you very much for your being here today and for advising president Biden and for helping us out in this very difficult uh, U.S.-Russia relationships. Well, thanks
2: both of Thanks, John, Victor. Thank you.
1: Thanks. Thanks. So, Victor, I thought that Fiona Hill was fascinating today and that I learned so much. She puts everything in perspective. I, I, I wish we could get a history class from her going back to the days of the, you know, USSR uh, and really understand what's going on. What do you think?
0: I totally agree with you i mean she she reminds me of a professor in, in in many ways, and I remember last time we talked with her about a Putin and kind of a profile into Putin, how he rose to power, and um, kind of taking this conversation a bit further into how the u s russia relations are and you know I mentioned this in the episode, but it 's like for for me and for so many people my age, it's like this is the first time that I think we see a president who's willing to be tough, but also willing to kind of go that step in terms of um, actually achieving progress with Russia. So it, it was a fascinating interview, and 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 I'm, I for our listeners, I, I, regret, I didn't kind of stay for the first part because I was uh, some some things happened in terms of the charger, and I got locked on my apartment. But um, I made it for the majority of the conversation. Um, how about you, Joe? What did you think of um, the episode?
1: I just thought that it was fabulous. Her candor and honesty in describing both President Trump and President Biden and how they related and what the experience of President Biden means to the future success of our foreign policy was really amazing and that we should all be very happy uh, that she was speaking to us as someone who was in the room where it all happened, and who will continue to have a role going forward. So, thank you, Fiona Hill, for being with us.
0: Yeah, and, and I just must say also, um, we're definitely gonna have we're definitely gonna have to have her uh, back on for her book because that book sounds interesting. We can definitely tie it in the polarization aspect of it, and kind of hearing her describe she initially wanted to kind of see a relation like a relationship with Russia improve, and then she was concerned about our own. Um, Kind of um, situation here in the U.S., and so we're going to have to have her back for that to talk about um, because that sounds like a very relevant book and definitely one for all generations. Exactly. So we want to thank all of our listeners, and especially to Fiona for coming back on the podcast um, with us today. Um, we hope that you'll uh, subscribe to our podcast, share it with all your friends, and tune in for our next episode of IGen Politics.